Welcome to Wild Blue Yonder on the Air. This is Air University's podcast. Uh, today we have two guests. We have Dr. Uh, Craig Felker and Dr. Uh, Martin Moicano. They are the recent authors of an Air University Press book, No Moment of Victory, the NATO Training Mission in Afghanistan, 2009 to 2011. Welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Margaret. To get us started, could you please uh, give us a little bit of background about how you came to write uh, what you really evocatively describe as history in real time? Maybe we'll run chronologically. Um, I arrived uh, to the NATO training mission while they were first building it uh, in the most straightforward of ways. I was a historian for the uh, U.S. Army Center of Military History, which is you know just a national treasure. They do wonderful work there. And one of the things they like to do is, is to support every conflict downrange with a historian in field. It happened that the NATO training mission had decided they wanted somebody there to do history. So I, I uh, volunteered to do that. And um, I arrived while there were not a lot of people there. But um, I, I think there's a lot of things we can say, a lot of analysis we can make of most of the leadership. And we certainly do that in our book. But um, one of the things I think most of the credit of General Caldwell when he was there was that he wanted this to happen. He, he was very insistent that history be documented, and he wanted the book to come out of it. Uh, it remains to be seen what he'll think of what the final <laughs> form is, but I think it's clear that his commitment to ensuring that the history of that time was preserved was legitimate, and I, I think that was uh, one of the things we should put to his credit. In fact, it was so important that after I'd finished my year, they went and got a more talented historian to take my place than Captain Felker, and maybe he can take it from there. Well, I'm not sure more talented uh, is deserved, but uh, I kind of got there in kind of a wacky kind of way. One of the other officers that accompanied uh, General Caldwell to establish the command was a Navy captain by the name of Mark Hagerot who was a colleague of mine at the Naval Academy. We were both permanent military professors, senior officers with PhDs teaching in the history department. He and General Caldwell went back to the time where they both worked for Paul Wolfowitz. And so that's how they became acquainted. General Caldwell pulled Hagerot, took Hagerot with him to establish NTMA. And about four months into uh, Mark Hagerot's time there, he emailed me and asked if I would, was interested in coming out there and taking over for Martin and, you know, continuing to, uh, to do the command historian job. And as Martin pointed out, General Caldwell, you know, he wanted a book out of this. And also, as Martin said, you know, whether the, the book that is out there is the one he anticipated, well, we'll see. But I, I think what we did was a credible, objective serious and sober analysis of what NATO was doing to build the Afghan army and police forces from the inception of the command or establishment until I was leaving when it was obvious that the drawdown was not just going to be restricted to the uh, the combat troops, but it was going to extend to all commands. And we started seeing the NATO training mission started to draw down. 
training missions aren't new by by any stretch of the imagination. Your book talks a little bit about the the really long standing uh, historical tradition that global north countries or or the West in general sends military trainers and advisors out globally. What kind of baggage and, and assumptions come along with that? I think there are profound uh, disconnects between history and reality in this that inform these decisions. If you really want to get to the root of it, I mean, I think that starting 19th and 20th century, when it was determined that Europeans came to believe themselves the world's most premier military, despite you know losing the irony of most of the fact that Chinese technologies enabled 90% of what they were doing, this had to do with just sort of an ignorance of history. I, and I say that in the sense of the West came to China. They came to China at a particular time when China was in a bit of disarray for reasons of its own. But those misreadings were very profound in terms of their impact on, on European leaders who, you know, well into the 19th century had already determined that as a result of various perceived inferiorities of the militaries of other countries that those nations could not achieve, or those states really, not nations, but states could not achieve any recognizable level of military competence unless someone from Europe taught them how. And I think we have to package that in so many ways in, in sort of broader assumptions about human beings in different parts of the world and the hierarchies that developed. I mean, in a certain sense, you could say that, you know, the Berlin conflicts in the 1870s has as much to do with this as anything, that cemented notions of superiority uh, continued to express themselves. And I, I think now it's much more implicit, but it still goes back to that basis of centuries of perceived superiority in, in many, many ways. And I certainly wouldn't argue that the people we worked with operated with these kind of biases in their minds in any present form. I think by now it's just been institutionalized and assumptions have been packaged to such a degree. And you know, those, those same assumptions are also supported largely by industry. I mean, if you look at something like foreign military sales, we have a whole cottage industry of businesses who create things with the aim of selling them to people who couldn't possibly afford or, in our view, utilize the capabilities of our most advanced systems. So I think there's, you know, kind of implicit racism in, in so many levels about this that we just have to confront it and accept it. And, and there's people who do this. If you look at the consistent record of conflict between Western and non-Western nations, it's not as clear cut as some people would lead us to believe. You know, if I could jump in really quickly, you know, one of the most interesting and unresearched stories of the last 20 years is going to be the role of contractors. And this ties into exactly what Martin was saying. I read a report while I was in Afghanistan. You know, I, you know, I spent my day reading all kinds of stuff. I read a report that, that said there were 250,000 contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2011. I mean, that's essentially a, a whole second army. When you think about that, you know, what were they doing? How were they being paid? How much were they being paid? And then most recently, you know, we, we, we heard testimony that the Afghan Air Force was pretty much contractor run and contractor maintained. At the time when we were there, 
there were contractors working, but the Afghans were also working to maintain the, uh, their aircraft. They were not sophisticated aircraft, but they, you know, they work. And then sometime after we left, the United States government decided to give the Afghans UH-60 Blackhawks and C-130 Hercules aircraft, which were far more sophisticated than what the Afghans were used to and far more difficult and complicated to maintain, which meant far more contractors had to be sent in there. So it's, you know, it plays into Martin's role, this Western arrogance that we know how to get you to that point, but you're going to need us as well as the technology for a long period of time. And as a consequence, I think there were a lot of people making a lot of money uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghanistan, of course, is kind of a, a prisoner of its geography. In terms of its history, they've been a buffer state and dealt with more powerful neighbors for now thousands of years. How has that shaped their ideas about central authority and, and governance and conflict? It's a little bit complicated in a basic sense in that I think historical memory has a lot to do with the way that Afghans perceive themselves in terms of their relationship to the broader world, not necessarily historical accuracy, but historical memory in a very profound sense. But loosely written, I think we need to go back to the Mughal dynasty and we need to understand that those were what we now consider Afghans who conquered the Indian subcontinent and large swaths of that region. And, and I think that that's their baseline assumption. You know, we, we tend to be fascinated with the, the bit of Alexander and the defeat of the Russians, but I, I think that the Afghans fundamentally, those who, who lead their militaries in particular, you know, really look at the fact that Afghans used to govern much of this part of the world, and they, they probably regarded that as a true measure of their, their martial worth. When, you know, when you look back to the structure of the Mughal, it was pretty decentralized inherently. It had to be. You weren't going to pick up the phone and call from one end of the Deccan all the way back to Kandahar. So um, they were used to being respected uh, in a very profound sense by a lot of serious powers and never really had any particular reason to create a centralized government because it, it didn't really generate any tangible benefits for them that they didn't already have. I mean, you know, the Mughal principates were never truly centralized. You know, you had a head, but no more than you have uh, now with Kabul, you know, prior to the fall with uh, Ashraf Ghani and before him, Hamid Karzai. They're basically the mayor of Kabulstan. (laughs) And everything that they do in terms of power is negotiated and it is mediated because that's always worked for the Afghans. They haven't had cause and they haven't gained benefits from their forays with the West. I mean, we we look at things like the Daoud period and his dalliance with international communism and it was bad for Afghanistan. The cork was pulled on that jug and caused decades of strife and misery for people. So. I think this autonomy that we hear so much of has perpetuated for many, many reasons, but the most profound and the most simple of them is because it's worked for them. Afghans have been able to accommodate a great deal of cultural and linguistic and ethnic difference simply by giving each other the space to do that and 
operating with a very little L libertarian sense of governance. And they haven't ever seen anything, I think, that has shown them that that was a bad idea. I mean, you can say, oh, well, the Soviets rolled in and they, they conquered you. Well, that's great, but in the end, the Soviets left. And, you know, the U.S. conquered whoever, and we left. So uh, I, I think unless there was some sort of clear and compelling set of motivations that has not yet ever come to pass, Afghans have no reason to question their way of doing business. Because everybody else just comes to spend a little time and goes. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating thing about and, and disturbing, saddening uh, aspect of all this. It, there are historians out there, uh, social scientists who have written about Afghanistan. Uh, Tom Barfield's book on Afghanistan explains everything that Martin just said. Whether policymakers in 2001, 2002 decided to reach out to the academic community or not, you know, who knows if they had. You know, had they read Tom Barfield's book, I think they would have understand exactly what Martin was explaining. You know, Afghanistan is Afghanistan and there's friction within the country, but the relationships that developed over hundreds of years and Afghans were pretty satisfied with the society that they had created. And any change, dramatic change, was not going to end well for them or anybody for that matter. I got a dovetail just quickly because CC brings some very, what I hope are useful thoughts, but you know I have to say them before I forget them. I, I think that even when you confront good ideas, at least you know kind of objectively good ideas, like hey, let's better the lives of Afghan women and children because objectively their their lives are not anywhere near global norms and standards. That idea is going to be viewed as suspect because it came from the outside, it came in a box. And it got put on their porch, and they didn't order it, and they want to know what's in there. <laughs> so I, I, to kind of use your modern metaphor, but I think that's an important thing for us to think about. This is no moment of victory, and broadly, this effort in Afghanistan are not right and wrong, black and white stories. And it's not about, for instance, Afghans being able or unable to process technology or democracy or anything like that. It's about who best determines what happens in a place. Is it the people who were born and, and live and die there and their ancestors and their children? Or is it people who come in from somewhere else with supposedly universal norms and standards that may or may not be uh, in the interest of those people in their view? I think that's the really the most important. What, what is it that the people in that place, wherever your, your training mission is, what is it that they really want? Well, and that leads perfectly into my next question, which is we know a lot about rebel resistance to the Soviet presence in Afghanistan. PME spills a lot of ink and devotes a lot of seminar time to the kind of bear went over the mountain version of what was happening in Afghanistan in the 1980s. But there's there's not a lot about Soviet efforts to train Afghans, which is uh, the immediate model that, that has come before this mission, what are some of the lessons learned from looking at the, the Soviet attempt to stand up a force in their image? Everywhere this has ever been done, that's how it's happened. And that, that perhaps is, is the most pressing and the most immediate lesson about the Soviet effort. They came in and brought in MiG fighters and brought in 
uh, Soviet armor and, and BTR armored vehicles and all this other stuff. And the one enduring material legacy has been AK rifles. Uh, the Kalashnikov has endured because it makes sense in this context. It, it was essentially designed for this context and it works for this context. And I think that's probably something we should have stared at and thought about, you know. Everything the Soviets did was geared into mirroring their force structure onto Afghans. And again, when your starting point is the wrong starting point, which is the assumption that there is a universal uh, operational art that must be replicated in all places by all peoples in order to generate success on the battlefield and in campaigns and ultimately in wars, uh, you're not going to succeed. I mean, it, 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 it not only is indicative of the Soviets failing to learn their own lessons. You know, I mean, if we want to say there has probably to this date never been a greater victory in military history than that of the Soviet Union over the Germans. I mean, the scale, the brutality, the endurance of those campaigns, the uh, ability to navigate forces of those size across the space in the conditions that they did to achieve victory. They forgot how they did that. And to me, I think both the Soviets and the United States walk away from the Second World War with a profoundly wrong lesson. And that lesson was that the most sophisticated and the most supposedly superior technology on the battlefield is the key to victory. When we look at how both of those nations, or we can call the Soviet Union a nation, I guess, of sorts, uh, if dictatorships can be, but um, neither the United States nor the Soviet Union defeated Nazi Germany, uh, and in our case also Imperial Japan, because we had better technical systems. We defeated them because we had replicable systems and we had sustainable systems, and we had things like armor that our average tank crews could repair on the battlefield and get back in the fight. And we had systems on the Soviet side. You look at their tanks, they're not even painted. They didn't need to be because your T-34 doesn't need to defeat a King Tiger. Ten T-34s can defeat a King Tiger easily. And, and that was the kind of lesson that the Soviets and the United States just seemed to have profoundly forgotten in the wake of World War II. And we adopted what looked much more like German operational art where Everything was based around the most sophisticated technologies that could be obtained, however sustainable they were, however expensive they were, however long the lead time of, of development production was. And, and so this is all to say that the Soviets attempted to project something that they had never won with on another group of people who had very little utility for it. And so it's not surprising that the Najibullah regime and its, its armed forces were not successful, in particular because the United States at that time, through its sponsorship, along with the Saudis and others of the Mujahideen, actually produced a model that was simple, sustainable, effective, suitable for the conditions and the skill level and the talent of the people that were available on the ground. And perhaps one of the most bitter pills we need to be swallowing at this point is to see that much of what the Taliban have done is continue that Mujahideen legacy of asymmetry with sustainability, simple weapons, part-time soldiers, all of the things that we taught the Mujahideen to do or encouraged the Mujahideen to do on top of what they were already doing. 
So maybe the most important lesson in talking about the Soviet era is we should be looking at what we, our Afghan allies, and our other international partners were doing in the 1980s to subvert the Soviet efforts, because that's where the lessons probably are. Yeah, and to, to join in, the Soviets built the Afghan army and police forces to protect the state, to protect the socialist system that the Soviets instigated and basically imposed on the Afghans. And maybe it would have worked had Kabul kept socialism in one city, but the problems began when you know the, the great socialist experiment got exported, got pushed out into the countryside. And it was the cultural resistance, you know, to Soviet socialism that led to the creation of the Mujahideen. There actually is a good bit of work on the Soviet uh, efforts to build and train uh, the Afghan army and police forces, but it's it's not easy to find. There is a, uh, a website called the uh, Afghanistan Analyst Network, if you just Google that. I stumbled across it when I was uh, there in, in 2011. It is a wealth of sources on every aspect, not just military, but social, cultural, economic, political. It is amazing the, the amount of material that you can find on that website. I went to it constantly, you know, to find contextual uh, sources for what, what I was seeing, the, you know, in the meetings, what I was seeing going on in the training command. It's out there, but you know, like everything else, if if you don't stumble across something, or if somebody doesn't say, "Hey, go check out this," uh, you know, this this website, you're not going to know it's there, which is kind of a shame because you know anyone who is interested in Afghanistan and the last, well, going back to the Soviet era, you know, ought to go to that website and and start mining the sources. Uh, you know, they, it is it is more than worthwhile. There's enough sources there to keep you busy for a lifetime, probably ten lifetimes. Through some of my own work, I've encountered the Afghan resistance, and you're absolutely right that they were so perfectly suited uh, to be flexible, to run lean, to work with the technology uh, available. The U.S., of course, had not been able to adapt that kind of thinking and those kind of lessons to Vietnam, and your book highlights that this was the model sort of that the, the U.S. most recently had how did they adapt their thinking to the Mujahideen when they hadn't been able to adapt it in Southeast Asia? Different people, different time, and the benefits of hindsight probably more than anything else. And um, if you look at a lot of the people that are behind this, not just Charlie Wilson, but there are people who've spent time in Latin America, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s that are that are part of this planning triage, but Maybe the most important thing is there are no international forward command assets. We're not planning their operations. We're not telling them what to do. We're not telling them how to do it. We're equipping and stepping back, by and large, as the strategic concept. And to give your partners and allies on the ground the opportunity to have the initiative, to give them the opportunity to make their own decisions about how to proceed is probably the most priceless and the most difficult thing that you have to do as a wealthy major power assisting people in the developing world. People can't succeed if you get in their way. 
and to dictate too much to any group of, of partners or allies is going to guarantee failure. And we didn't do that to the degree where it could cause failure with the Mujahids. Um, few people uh, in the world and, and in the experience of being an American ally suffered from more American advice than the Vietnamese. We can get into that now or we can get into that later per your preference, but uh, it should be in many ways a high water mark that should have taught us a lot more than it did. I guess the one thing, just to, to start off, I mentioned Tom Barfield's book on uh, Afghanistan. The other book that was actually informed the thesis for No Moment of Victory was uh, Michael Latham's Modernization as Ideology, American Social Science and Nation Building in the Kennedy Era. I read it while I was doing a readings course in graduate school on 20th century U.S. diplomatic history with uh, Michael Hunt. You know, it was like one of 20 books at the time. So it was a really good book. But after I left grad school, I didn't think about it until about four months into my time in Afghanistan and looked around what was going on. I said, wow, this looks like Latham. This could be a case study in Michael Latham's book. It's a great starting point if we're going to talk about Vietnam to talk about the strategic camera program uh, because it has some of the most uh, transferable lessons. I would say that the most obvious thing is we have people see the strategic hangout program and write about it and think about it, Bing West being the most obvious. It wasn't scalable. It never could be scalable. And, and I believe it's such a valuable historical parallel because we sent small teams into Vietnamese villages to integrate and assist with local defense. So it's actually a real requirement. It's actually a legitimate need that people in South Vietnam had at that time was self-defense. They weren't unfamiliar with it, but they weren't as familiar with it as they should have been for reasons of the methods of French governance more than anything else. It was French fear of arming and training too many Vietnamese that had a lot to do with that. But bottom line is to find, especially in the draft army of the 1960s, since 67, 68 or so tended to be kind of the height of the end of this business was very few people in the United States military had the skills necessary to walk into a village and act as a cultural diplomat as well as a military trainer. It's as simple as this. We all have neighbors. If you go knock on your neighbor's door and let him know or her know that I'm here to help you fix your house and we're going to start with what color we should paint it, for instance. You're hard-pressed to ever convince someone that you know better about their stuff than they do. And it's not to say it can't be done. It's to say that it's a pretty rare skill set, even now, uh, in our military, composed of volunteers with incredible resumes and incredible educational backgrounds. The people we talk about in this book, I think, if nothing else, we have to say these are enormously impressive people. They, they are skilled in ways that very few people, broadly speaking, are. But even then, finding people who can walk into somebody else's village and convince those people to allow them to have a kind of implicit and tacit leadership of the safety and security of the village over the leaders of the village, that's asking a lot. And it's again, it's not that people can't. It's just that very few people have both the martial and the diplomatic and the cultural skills to be able to do that. You know, you look at Vietnam in another sense of strategic camera, the linguistic background, 
of our people was extremely poorly suited to Southeast Asia. Since nearly all Americans in those times were monolingual, nobody bothered to learn languages to speak of. It's better now, and we saw some improvement now, but the bottom line remains that we are not a people who intensely and seriously study other cultures in the world. We tend to be fairly introspective in our, in our intellectual exercises. But the strategic Hamlet is, is a good symbolic effort in that we could never have enough of it to make it work. We could maybe find a few thousand people who could achieve that level of competence and all of the different skill sets necessary and avoid alienating important members of the community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's still true. It's extremely hard because we sent amazing people to Iraq and Afghanistan and they still struggled with it because it's hard to do. And it's not necessarily truly uh, your military member's skill set. We certainly haven't trained them from the go to do these things. So if you use the hammer and a nail analogy, we sent hammers, but we sent a box of screws along with it. (laughs) Well, and it's entirely inappropriate, but I know that I'm going to find myself in a seminar and I'm going to use the Homeowners Association theory of counterinsurgency. Uh, we're here to tell you that you can paint your house one of these two exciting colors. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, Margaret, you know, the, the, I'm not sure how, in retrospect, how how valuable the co- the current coin manual is. So, you know, why not throw out another another manual, the Homeowners Association uh, Guide to Counterinsurgency Operations? I'd like that. <laughs> but these these decades of fighting, though, mean that when we get to about 2000, 2002, there are a lot of really battle-hardened, experienced uh, combatants in Afghanistan. These are the, the survivors uh, of all of those operations. So they know a lot, but not in terms of standing up a big, complex organizational system. Um, so what what does the U.S. And, and what does our coalition do in response to those assets? Misuse them. If we, if we want to make that a really short answer, we misuse them. We attempt to take skilled fighters who can control Mujahideen elements and create a Taliban operations if we gave them the opportunity. and try to jam them into a traditional force structure. Again, essentially looking a bit like a World War II army, even though we knew and always should have known that that was never going to be the the character of war in Afghanistan, but we we continued to stick to what we knew. And, And, you know, it's kind of funny because so many of the people who had been instrumental on the U.S. side in helping support the Mujahideen are long retired. A few of them were dragged screaming out of retirement, but for the most part, you have people in senior leadership roles in 2000, 2001, 2002 is the first Gulf War. Line up a bunch of tanks and roll over a bunch of half-starved Iraqis who don't want anything to do with it. So it's a very different kind of, of campaign that is the fundamental worldview of the people that we're sending. And still... We sent wonderful people, but they're wonderful people who do as they're told. And it, it 
at so many levels for me, the breakdown was never at the operator level. The breakdown was anytime you put stars on people and went up from there, you had a general officer corps in the middle trying to execute whatever portfolio they were given. And then at the strategic level, I think that pretty much every successive administration that oversaw this war abandoned their duty to deliver and execute a real strategy. It always felt reactionary. It always felt as though it was being cobbled together largely by people with no sense of what they were trying to do in a broader scope. And so, sure, we walk in to Afghanistan and, you know, we bring some people back from Pakistan, even bring some people back from the United States who are ready to, Afghan people, that is, who are ready to jump back in and give it another try. But the type of force that was going to be developed had been preloaded and predecided. The other simple answer to this is you reach back, I mean, when the Obama administration decides to stand up the command is where do you go? And you, you look, look to Leavenworth and the Army's training and doctrine command. And you've got, you know, the, the Afghan National Security Forces uh, in a box ready to go. And you bring the prior commander of that and some of his you know, closest uh, comrades and, and, and battle buddies and you basically take the Army Training and Doctrine Command and you apply it to develop the Afghan National Security Forces. Just to, for a, a quick example, you know, the, the Ministerial Development Program. The Afghan the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of the Interior, they were inefficient, corrupt, uh, nepotistic, Afghan, as what they were. Uh, but a 21st century you know, Ministry of Defense or Interior that's responsible for recruiting, training, deploying, supplying its army and police forces can't operate that way. So we imposed this, this ministerial development program on both of them and brought in both military senior officer and senior civilian advisors. I don't think there was a single Afghan in either of those uh, ministries that didn't have a coalition advisor at the hip. Well, when the Afghans wanted them at the hip, I think at the at the senior officer level, you know, they they were you're given a mission and you're told to complete it, and that becomes you know your, your main olive effort is to be successful. So that was driving a lot uh, of policy was we've got to get this done and we're going to be successful and we can make it we can make it happen. It doesn't mean there weren't a lot of skeptics out there, you know, healthy skeptics, not not cynics, but Officers normally in the in the captain, major, lieutenant colonel ranks, you know, who were looking around. We weren't the only ones that were kind of looking around and saying, hey, what's going on here? They were doing the same thing. They were sharp officers. I mean, you know, there were some Kool-Aid drinkers there, but there were a lot of a lot of officers and and enlisted personnel as well, you know, who were also heavily invested in this program. You know, that were looking around and said, well, you know, maybe we are applying too much in the way of money, too much in the way of technology, too much in the way of how we do business to get the Afghans to to modernize, to become a self-sustaining modern army and police force. I appreciate that you've mentioned the coalition uh, because we need to bring them into the, the discussion as well. The U.S. doesn't have the same expectations of government as many of our allies. They, they function differently. And you point out that this 
really affected the way that the training mission worked because they have their own cultural and legal guardrails. I found it interesting that the the German police couldn't be commanded by the military for some extremely good reasons uh, in terms of German history. How did that complicate the mission? There were a a mishmash of, of organizations in addition to NTMA that were involved in ANSF development, particularly on the on the police side. So there was a German police training team which was not answerable to NTMA. There was the European police training mission to Afghanistan, which was not answerable to NTMA. And then there was NTMA. So you got three different organizations you know, essentially doing the training and not all of them agreeing on how that training should be done or, or where it should be, what should be emphasized. I mean, the fundamental problem that General Caldwell has when it comes to the police mission is we're in the middle of a, call it an insurgency, call it a civil war, whatever you want to call it, but the police have to be, they have to survive in a combat environment. I mean, it's not like a B cop in you know New York City. That's dangerous, especially nowadays, but in Kandahar or some faraway district, it's far more dangerous. So, you know, Caldwell's problem, the tension that exists within NTMA is, hey, we, we got to get these police. They have to be able to survive in a combat environment. We got to build up the police forces to what, where we think they need to be. Those police forces need to be comprised of officers and NCOs and patrolmen. And then once we've satisfied the 75% gotten the 75% solution. Then we try to bring in those aspects of civil policing that the West has been working on for centuries and still haven't gotten it right. But the tension is the Europeans, many of the European nation states that are participating in NATO, and NATO was about 29% of NTMA, so far more Americans. But there was a lot of pressure that was brought to bear on General Caldwell to move those police from the combat role, combat slash survival role into the civil policing role. Uh, the, the Canadians were extremely enthusiastic about moving and the Canadians were in charge of police training within the NTMA. And, and they were trying as well to, to move the Afghan police training to, to include more civil policing. But the, that reflected the, you know, basically the thesis of the book is you've got an Afghan cop who, you know, is barely educated, maybe through a literacy program, is reading at the first grade level. If he's an NCO, he's reading at the, at the third grade level. And, and teaching an Afghan to read at the third grade level is not the same as educating an Afghan policeman on how he should deal with, you know, the, the citizens in his district, you know, how he should enforce the law, what, you know, and, and how he should, you know, treat his fellow citizens with respect. That was going to be difficult to achieve in a peacetime environment, let alone trying to achieve it in a combat environment. The last part of this were the caveats that various uh, European nations imposed on their the forces that they sent to NTMA, the Dutch, for existence. The Dutch promised trainers, but the caveat was that, well, they, they're only going to be used to train police for civil policing. Yeah, and, and that, you know, that created a, a problem for, for General Caldwell. He's trying to, as Martin wrote in the book, trying to fly the aircraft while he's building it. I mean, he is on a constant, constant search 
twisting arms and, you know, with NATO, other countries, the United States, for more trainers, for more trainers, for more trainers, then countries are willing to provide trainers, but on the condition that, you know, and, and in the case of the Dutch, General Caldwell basically said, I need the trainers. So we will accede to the Dutch caveat that the trainers will only be used for to, to instruct in civil policing. The Dutch also wanted to, to expand the, the basic patrolman's course from six to eight weeks, which throws off NTMA timetables, but nevertheless, you know, they, they acceded to that. So it's all these tensions, you know, within NTMA, between NTMA and the other organizations, you know, European organizations that are dealing with police training. And then we may get to this down the road, but the tensions with the IJC, the ISAF Joint Command, which was the warfighting part of, of ISAF. You know, you've got two three-stars. So supposedly they're co-equal, right? I mean, they're, they're two three-stars. One's in charge of warfighting, one's in charge of the advising or the development of the ANSF. The problem is a re, it's a resource tension, though, right? I mean, the IJC commander, he needs boots on the ground to do combat operations, counterinsurgency operations. And then there's General Caldwell, who says, look, the long pole in the tent for Afghanistan's future is you know, an army and a police force that can sustain themselves you know, in the field. I think he was right, to be honest with you. The problem is whether that was achievable. And unfortunately, we're never we're not going to know that. I mean, you know, every question now about Afghanistan is counterfactual. We should have done that or we didn't do that. Well, you don't know. Yeah, we know we know what happened. Well, we know some of what happened over the last 20 years, but we're never going to know whether Caldwell's vision, which was generational, by the way. I mean, in his mind, NTMA was going to be there for a long time, long after you know, the coalition, the, the war fighters were out or down to a minimum force. He envisioned NTMA being there for a long, long time. And we won't know whether, whether it was right or not, because like I said, in 2014, President Obama gave the word, everybody's starting to get out. I appreciate uh, a couple of pieces that you raised in, in that answer. They tie back to something you, you highlight that in the guiding documents, uh, ANA1, there's kind of an assumption underlying how you're going to train and build. And it is generational. It, it talks about nation and loyalty and, and constitution. And I think we forget that these are things that are really pretty new in the West and, and in the global North countries. They didn't spring full formed out of anybody's head. We fought civil wars over them. We're still amending them. We're still actively working them. And I, I think that's maybe a big piece of this, that unless we acknowledge how hard these things are and have been for our own countries, it's very difficult to export them. Would, would you agree? It's fascinating, Margaret, when you think about it. You know, we're all military historians. You know, we're thinking about this. Our current culture of the profession of arms goes back thousands of years. I mean, literally, it goes back to, to Greece or to Athens. And so it took thousands of years to get the United States Army, you know, to where it is today. And I think you're right. I think that, you know, the, 
whether it was lost on the minds of policymakers and senior officers within NTMA, whether they had thought historically, uh, I'm not sure many of them did, because if, if they had, I think they would have realized that we're trying to cram 2,000 years of Western martial development and professionalism onto an army. And you see the, the organizations, the infrastructure, and not just the physical infrastructure, but the educational uh, and training infrastructure that we built for them. You know, they, they had a, a West Point, the National Military Academy of Afghanistan. We had envisioned there was in the works to build them a, an ISS, you know, kind of like a war college system. The training schools were all basically created through the image of the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. They would have gotten it. They would get it. And they got some of it, and some of it they didn't care to get. And I think that's probably the principal problem is what they liked they took and what they didn't like about what we were doing, they ignored or they undermined or they used for their own personal profit. But if, if, we, if we use that 2,000-year timeline and say, well, you know, the question is, well, how do we expect to apply 2,000 years of, you know, developmental history onto a, an army and police force that don't have that? They're only, you know, a little over 250 years old, uh, if you want to call it that. And we only have four years to do it. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. I can't but completely agree with all of that. I think there's a little bit more that we should add to that, which is the Greek legacy uh, of the citizen soldier and marathon, et cetera, et cetera. Going back, if we believe that that's the right legacy, then we need to at least caveat it with the fact that the Macedonians were defeated by the Afghans. (laughs) We also need to think that in four and five years was a great number because we never could decide what it was exactly that we were trying to accomplish. And with very few exceptions, Carl Eikenberry being one, Senior leaders were not around for long enough to sustain any kind of policy in the military sense. They're doing a job. They're executing a mission based on guidance from the commander-in-chief and the people around them. But those people never really figured out what it was that they wanted. It continued to morph and change and ebb and flow for various reasons, some domestic, some international, which really precluded there being any kind of a sustained effort, even for, I would say, even for four or five years. It really felt a lot like every election cycle would then drive Afghanistan policy of the United States and its allies in a different direction. We talk about NATO nations, and in the time CC and I were there, some of those elections in the European Union meant that some nations were obligated to withdraw. It also, in some cases, meant some nations were going to increase their effort based on their own domestic politics. So I think for there to be a coherent vision to impart to the Afghans, the way that our country and our closest allies develop strategy is going to have to change. I'm going to add to that. So, Margaret, I've got some of my uh, Afghanistan 
presentations, a couple that I gave you know, after I got back in 2011, 2012. And Martin has it right. We could rhetorically describe what we wanted, but we relied instead on numbers, which were hard. So the the 2014 end state, and this is this is off of a slide, a command presentation. This is the 2014 end state, a self-reliant, professionally led ANSF, which generates and sustains enduring police, army, medical infrastructure, and logistics capabilities with accountable and effective Afghan ministries that are responsive and answerable to the Afghan people. There's the rhetoric, but we can't, we can't figure out how to get there. So what happens is numbers become the means to get there. 352,000. I mean, that's that's the magic number, right? Divided between the Afghan National Army and, and the police. That becomes kind of conflated with professionalism because there's no way, I mean, in a short period of time that we are going to be able to, I don't want to say indoctrinate, but inculcate a, a Western professional ethos into the Afghan army and police. I think most people into NTMA knew that. So instead, you know, we focus on the numbers. You, we build the forces up. We build the training infrastructure. We build all the, you know, the, the enabling capability, the schools at least, all the branch schools. Now getting Afghans through those was another problem. Uh, altogether, but it's it's the difference between the, the rhetoric, which we we can describe what we wanted. We wanted the end state. We can describe what we wanted the Afghan army and police to be, but we couldn't get there. So instead, we focused on the numbers. We hit that magic number. Basically, we were there. The problem was that halfway through my year there, as we were getting close to 352, we had a really smart Canadian two star who was in charge of army development. Guy by the name of Michael Day was saying, "Well, as soon as we get to 352, we're going to have to start ramping down because the Afghans can't afford a 352,000-man army and police force." So, literally, as we were building up, we're, we're looking at having to draw the draw those forces down because they could not sustain them on their own, which was the whole point of NTMA being there in the first place. <laughs> I think sometimes military decision-making just by its bureaucracy tends to skew towards wanting those quantifiable metrics. They want to do data-driven decision-making and you underline the, the difficulty of that really well. It's much more uncomfortable to deal with the, the squishy stuff. Did you at, at any point sort of get a sense of what Afghan recruits for the military or the police wanted out of their service? What sort of uh, motivations did they have? What did they want? We couldn't talk to them directly. When we did, we talked, even those of us that could, could speak some of the languages, I got to the point where I could pretty well understand most things in Dari. We were never really intended to have informal, honest contact with most Afghans. You know, there were always at a minimum, international trainers present, contractors present, but usually also other Afghan leaders present. So if you were trying to talk to a sergeant, his officers were going to be around. And 
in the absence of the ability to gain true input, what we did was a lot of dog and pony show. And I, I think that the Kabul military hospital was the greatest example of that, is that you would go out there and General Yapali would run the same dog and pony show on every group of people that went out there. I went out there three or four different times with different groups of people, and he would give the same slide presentations that appealed to our quantitative desires and uh, threw out the words that we had come to believe at that particular time were important based on the NSS and things coming out of Washington. And we all know the reality was this man was robbing this blind and abusing people to death. So to say, you know, what were the motivations? What we heard was the dog and pony version of that. When you went out to a Kandak or when you went out to a recruiting center, wherever you went, you continually heard the same things about serving the nation and advancing the Afghan people and all this stuff. They told us what we wanted to hear. And if you want any really true, clear example of what was happening, we can look to the end of the effort and see that when the money cut off, the folks left in, in large numbers. And this is not a surprise in a country where we were giving people a much better income than most people could ever come across. It's not to, to fault these people. Uh, it's to say, if you could make 20 times what you normally could, why wouldn't you? So you don't really need a profound motivation emotionally or intrinsically. It's just, I can either make a dollar a day farming in miserable conditions, or I can make considerably more than that get some free Chinese boots and a gun and you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to go any further than that. It's just the most simple of motivations. That's such a great point. And you know, I, I, since we're on the numbers thing, you know, the other number that vexed the command the entire two years was 2.6%. And that is 2.6 of the Afghan army went AWOL every month. So you're losing almost a third of the army every month, $250 million a year it was costing. And that tells you that trying to imbue some sense of nation or loyalty to the, uh, to the Afghan constitution or seeing yourself beyond your family, tribe, ethnicity, wasn't making it to the Afghan soldiers in the rank and file. The police were a different story. They were but a different situation altogether. The beat cops, the Afghan National Police, were raised, were trained and deployed or situated in the districts and the towns where they lived. So I'm making money and I'm not doing the work very hard. And hopefully nobody's shooting at me, you know, because I got the uniform on. The army was a was it was a different animal entirely. And a third of it, a third of it dropped its packs and went home. And there were no consequences. The, the, the Afghan government never really put forth much of an effort. You know, they Karzai would, would issue an amnesty decree. Hey, come on back and you'll be fine. We won't uh, jail you. But no one ever came back and the Afghan government never went after them. And, and, and that number, I, like I said, it vexed the command for the entire two years that we were there. And explaining it, they, they couldn't explain it. I mean, you know, they throw out, well, you know, it's leadership. You know, that's that's the problem. And but never going into any definition of what those leadership issues were, 
there were uh, distinct or d defined incidences where Afghan and senior NCOs and officers would uh, would mistreat the troops, would steal from the troops. Uh, but how widespread that was across the army, I don't think we knew. It was there. We knew it was there. The NTMA tried to fix it through various uh, means, giving soldiers their pay on debit cards instead of issuing them cash or something like that. But still, I don't think you know, they, they could never get their arms around the whole leadership thing. What do you mean by leadership? You know, that that failure. That, that's a great part of this equation. And one of the things that mattered more than anything was the spike of the harvest season to include the opium harvest, because loyalties that you did see were Afghans had loyalty to their families, to their villages, to their, their extended families, to their tribes if they had one. Most did, and uh, they would go home and help their family out. And then not as many of them as you would hope for would come back from that. And, uh, you know, every year we wondered, well, why is it that this particular set of months is such a problem for attrition? Until somebody finally figured out it cross-hatched with the agricultural seasons, and they were out there, you know, pulling crops with their, with their rest of their family. But it's, it's a fascinating thing, and I think that tells us, again, there were limits to what we knew. On thinking about how the U.S. school system calendar is still set up <laughs> on an ag not just on an agricultural model, but nobody's going to be in school the first day of deer season. That, that is an impossibility uh, in the South. Um, in your discussions, uh, you show that, that all of these analyses of the numbers tended to polarize around Afghanization or transition as, as really the, the bifurcated options. Can you describe these plans? And, and then what was the space in between? There was no space in between. And, and I don't think, you know, I came up with the, the term uh, Afghanization to kind of relate it to, to the Vietnam experience. You know, the, the, the difference is Transition, NTMA saw transition as a, a, a long-term effort. You know, yeah, the transition would be the Afghan National Security Forces would, would transition to the security lead by the end of 2014. That was the objective. But NTMA was going to be there long after 2014 to help nurture that sustainment. And you saw it in the out-year budgets. I mean, out-year budgets were about $6.8 billion a year. And that was going to be ad infinitum. The Afghan government only pulled in around $400 million a year. And how much of that got stolen or lost or whatever, who knows? So it was going to be a United States and NATO effort for the foreseeable future. But that's how Lieutenant General Caldwell saw it. He saw this the Afghan police and army, they're going to be responsible for their own security, for Afghanistan security, but NTMA is going to be there. It's going to be there for a long time. That was transition. Afghanization is the same as Vietnamization. Give them the weapons, give them uniforms, give them a bag, you know, bags of money, and we're out of there. And, and we know how that played out. That was the difference. There was, there was no middle ground. In fact, I don't think, I'm, I'm positive that, that General Caldwell, you know, and the command, never looked at it from that perspective of Afghanization. They saw NTMA as it was going to be there for the long haul. It was going to be transition. It was not going to be cutting and running. 
basically. And that's that's why maybe I didn't explain it as well as I could have, uh, you know, in the book. But that was that was my thinking. The really haunting thing, I think, for me reading this and having PME students is that we do send excellent people. I mean, these are bright, motivated, highly educated people who are deeply invested in what we would think of as kind of the Western way. Uh, I mean, they love democracy and they believe in the U.S. Constitution and they look at the organization of the military that they volunteered to be in and they think it's the best way and they they're really genuine and very emphatic uh, about those beliefs and that's part of why they they want to transfer it to other people Um, and I, I see this in my seminars and people are very moved by this it underlines some of their recent very disappointed and disillusioned feelings Uh, now in in the last couple of months. But there's also this kind of paradox of what happens when you want something for people that they don't want for themselves. Uh, And that that kind of specter just kind of hung over uh, your conclusion. And and can you speak to that? What what does that mean for for thinking about our global engagements? I I put my Captain America hat on here because there's a whole lot of what you just said, Margaret, that I, I I definitely agree with. I feel that whatever faults and inane celebrities we may have, that the United States is and, and should continue to be the greatest country in the world. And we have this incredible uh, political inheritance from perhaps unintended, but we still have it that has allowed us to thrive and grow and do so many wonderful things in the world, a really important caveat to that is, and people are welcome to contradict me, and I'm sure they will, and they'll argue at infinity of, but we haven't won a conflict with a clear and decisive outcome since 1945. So all of this employment of what is legitimately the finest military that probably the world has ever seen, I mean, the, the quality from person to person is, is simply unmatched. I mean. Nobody can, you know, do, and I'm sure Cece has a million anecdotes too. It's like you, you walk into a room. I used to teach NCO courses for NATO, among others, and you'd walk in and there'd be three or four people holding a PhD in, in physics or something amazing in a room full of sergeants. This is not the drafty army of the 1930s. This is a military force that is simply almost uh, unmeasurable in its true capability. But it, it walks back to this is how can you use a jackhammer to inculcate democracy? You can't. It's a fundamental message of first we're going to blow up everything you have and then you're going to accept our method of government. You know, I mean, it's a paradox that can't be dealt with. And I think what it does and what it has done is it has allowed poor leaders starting with 1600 Pennsylvania for generations to abdicate strategic vision. The last strategic vision this country had truly was in SC-68. It came, you know, out of some fundamental ideas of a middle-level diplomat that were developed. But since then, um, I think our domestic politics have driven our global strategy to such an extent that whenever that 
strategy breaks down, as it almost constantly does, our, our reactionary response is to send this military arm of our government, which is the most competent, the most trusted, and the most capable arm of the federal government. I mean, there, there's no comparison. I mean, for God's sake, go try to get a driver's license. Go you know, try to buy stamps. And it's not that our federal government necessarily does things poorly. It's just once you've been exposed to the United States military, you see a professionalism and an expertise that sets the high watermark. But no matter how skilled they are, no matter how educated they are, no matter how right those individuals may be about our political system, that doesn't make the military instrument of power universally applicable and universally valuable because it boils down to ends, ways, and means. And when you don't have them, that calculus laid out, as we did not in Afghanistan, the results are always going to be predictable and it's always going to be failure. And we just need to be honest with ourselves about things. It's not that we can't win wars. It's that we aren't really fighting wars. We're sending people to do nation building and civic engagement and engineering and so many other things that because of the go-getter nature and the talent of these people, they manage to halfway do, even though they really have no business being so successful. Favorite example before I pass the CC, the NCO who helped stand up the Iraqi stock market right after 2003, right, had no business being there doing it. The guy's 25 years old and gets out there and he manages to pull it off because that's the kind of people we have. It's not any... In indictment of our people. And in this case, I don't think we should indict the Afghans. There are plenty that did care. There were plenty that did try. You just can't, you know, change people's hearts at the point of a gun, no matter how hard you try. Well, and I want, I, I want to add to the, the importance of, of PME, especially at the inner service and senior school level. The academies, yeah, you know, we want to we want to start developing critical thinking skills in, in midshipmen and cadets. I mean, where you are in Maxwell and Leavenworth and Carlisle and Newport, I mean, that's where the hard work of developing critical thinking skills happens to officers who have enough education and operational experiences so they you don't have to teach them what war is like they know that but you as faculty and particularly civilian faculty members are, are so important to this pme process it's because you're teaching them for the first time that they can ask questions i mean and that that's what critical thinking is all about at least in my opinion is asking questions you know, you know not being a subversive not you know not just why are we doing things the way we're doing things? And you can you can ask that question to a senior officer, you know, in a professional manner without him or her, you know, lopping your head off. And that's and you're doing that. I would say the other key to that is those officers that demonstrate those really advanced critical thinking skills in the service colleges need to be promoted. They need to be the colonels and they need to be the generals. I think the promotion, at least I'll, I'll speak for the Navy promotion system up through 06, is pretty merit-based. I mean, you know, I mean, they identify the people, you know, me notwithstanding, I'm not talking about myself, but they identify, you know, the people that are best going to serve the Navy as an 06. But 
once you get into the flag officer selection process, then it gets really murky, you know, and kind of magical and mystical. Every knucklehead that gets promoted to flag and general officer means that there's not a serious, you know, thinker educated with combat experience or operational experiences that ought to be there, that as a four-star sitting in the room with the president of the United States, when the president says, well, what do we do next? We've driven out the Taliban, okay, it's going, what next? You know, says, well, Mr. President, maybe we will just leave the Afghans alone. Let's give them, let's give them their gold and their, and their guns. And the president says, what if we transform Afghanistan? Then that's the four that says, well, Mr. President, that's, that's one way to do it, but let's look at the downsides, the consequences, the bad consequences, you know, how, as, as Martin says, you know, what are the means that we have to do this? You know, what are the skill sets that we have to do this? You know, can we do this? And in the end, the president can say, thank you, General, I don't care. We're going to do it this way. And the general will do it. That's, it's an order. It's a legal order. You don't resign. You don't say no. You, you go do it. But at least that four star has made it clear to the president that these are the implications if we take the road that you want to take that may not be the best road to take. That's PME's job. Well, it's your, you're doing your job. You're educating those officers. You know, it's the service's responsibility to promote those officers into those positions where, you know, they can raise those questions in a respectful and professional, and they ought to. I, I think they're, they're obligated to raise those questions. Frankly, I think the research, what we did for two years in Afghanistan has kind of, it, it answers some questions over the last few months. Questions that I heard General Milley asking, kind of rhetorically to himself during his testimony to the, uh, to the Senate Armed Services Committee. I was listening to him ask these questions and I said, wait a minute, has he read the book? Did he get an advanced copy? I don't think he did, but uh, so in a way, it, it, I don't want to say we're vindicated. I feel vindicated, but I think, you know, that our research and our analysis and our conclusions and our argument, I, I think they make sense given what's happened in the last 10 years since we wrote, turned the manuscript in, but more important, the last four or five months as Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. Well, I want to thank the two of you for your time. This has been a fantastic discussion. We've been conversing with Dr. Craig Felker and uh, Marty Lipano. They were command historians whose work has uh, come out as No Monument to Victory, the NATO training mission in Afghanistan, uh, which is brand new from AU Press and available to download in a link that we'll have for you here in the transcript. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining us, and uh, we appreciate your expertise. Well, thank you, Margaret. I, I want to commend a Air University Press. They, they stuck with us. Doc Rock, Rockwell, you know, accepted the manuscript. You know, we went through an exhaustive editorial process. That was good. It was, uh, but what I appreciate, well, I had a colleague, a Navy colleague, that teaches at another uh, service school, that said, when I told him it was going, coming out with AUP, he said, that's a serious press. And he meant that, he meant that in a good way. And I think it's uh, <clears throat> a testament uh, to Chris Ryan and, and all the editorial staff that they uh, stuck with the book. They helped us uh, turn it into the book that it is. 
and you know, we're willing to you know put a book out there that I wouldn't call it controversial, but it's it's certainly not one that adheres to a party line. So thank you very much to AUP. We appreciate that. And certainly, I hope that anyone listening who is thinking of uh, doing this kind of scholarship, that you'll consider us. And please get in touch because we enjoy and see it part of our mission to support these kinds of analyses and endeavors. So thank you, gentlemen, and we'll call it a day. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you very much, Margaret.